You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. Good evening. Welcome to the International Spy Museum. I'm Peter Ernest, the director, and we are delighted to have you all here. Uh, I must say this, uh, the subject we're discussing could not probably have come at a better time in that I think there probably isn't anyone in America who isn't discussing the, either Edward Snowden or the NSA coverage or uh, Manning or whatever. In other words, this whole issue of intelligence coverage of Americans uh, of all stripe, uh, the concerns about terrorism. Uh, we now have the recent incident in, in uh, Nairobi, which, in which Americans may or may not have participated. We don't know. Uh, it has not been confirmed. So I really am I'm pleased, very pleased to bring uh, Matt Apuzo here who has written the book, by the way, he will be available for signing, Enemies Within, Inside NYPD's Secret Spying Unit, and Bin Laden's Final Plot Against America. Uh, <clears throat> Matt is the co-author of the book, and he is, uh, has been an investigative reporter for the Associated Press here in Washington, and he received a Pulitzer Prize for his work on this book. Um, before joining the team here, he was the AP legal affairs writer in Washington, and before Washington, he was with an AP team in Connecticut covering corruption in government. I have to share with you, typically when you're doing uh, movie criticism or books or anything, you get some sort of bio, background, and so forth. But I really have to share this with the crowd. This is from Matt. I didn't make, I'm not making this up, all right? This is from Matt, something he gave us to use, and it says here that he has flown in a Black Hawk, slept in his car after Hurricane Katrina, argued from the gallery in federal court, and overall had more fun than he anticipated when it became clear that he would never get into medical school. So we rarely get people with that degree of candor who are appearing here to address the group. Now, I think what makes this particularly interesting is this is about a law enforcement unit, specifically the one uh, associated with the NYPD in New York. And Matt has invited uh, Don Borelli to join him. Uh, Don Borelli was involved in the same case of a fellow named Zazi, which is the subject of the book. So Don was at that time in the Federal Bureau of Investigation. 
He's currently, he has left the Bureau, he's retired, currently Senior Vice President of the SUFON Group, which is an international strategic consultancy group advising governments, corporations, institutions on policy, strategy, and security, as well as a senior fellow with the Center for Advanced Defense Studies. He was, he had a 25-year career in the Bureau. Uh, he was the assistant SAC, assistant special agent in charge in the New York Joint Terrorism Task Force. He would have been very close to the events that Matt described, he and his co-author described in this book. And that was the, uh, uh, the uh, plot to bomb the New York subway system by Najibullah Zazi. Uh, he also, and I think this is very interesting, served as the FBI's legal, legat or legal attache in Amman, Jordan, and he covered from there Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. I don't know how well you'd be able to cover Syria today. Not much. Uh, not, not much, okay. <clears throat> and he received numerous awards and commendations for his work. Graduate of the University of Southern California, Bachelor of Science in Business Administration. So uh, they have asked me, invited me to moderate this, but I think we'll begin with a presentation by Matt on the writing of the book, the subject of the book, open it up to a discussion Thank here, you. and certainly we'll invite you to join us. So please help me welcome Don Borelli and Matt Apuzzo. Okay. Thanks. Um, so our book, at its heart, if we did it right, is a, is a thriller. And, and, it's, and it really centers around this, this guy named uh, Najibullah Zazi. He's a 20-something from, uh, from Queens, uh, come from Afghan family, uh, were living the American dream, and uh, you know they were in favor of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan after 9/11. Um, but you know what? He he kind of fell. He kind of became disassociated with uh, with society. Dropped out of high school. Kind of became a bit of a loner, um, and slowly began to see or begin to believe that the U.S. was kind of no better than the Soviet Union in terms of our involvement in Afghanistan. Uh, he took to the Internet and sort of fell under the influence of uh, radical preachers like Anwar al-Awlaki um, and, and really began to believe that it was his duty to, uh, to take up arms and fight with the Taliban. Um, but, you know, if you're a kid from Queens, it's not necessarily easy to fight with the Taliban. Um, but he and his two friends... Uh, did the best that they knew, and they got on a plane, and they flew to Pakistan, and went walking around northwest the tribal regions, trying to fig find somebody who would help them fight with the Taliban. I mean, it's this sort of crazy, naive idea that if we just sort of walk around and say, hey, can somebody help me join the fight against the United States, that maybe that would work. Um, he didn't actually end up with, with the Taliban. He, uh, he fumbled his way into the hands of al-Qaeda, which was very excited to see three men with, uh, you know, with American credentials uh, looking to join a fight. But I said, geez, why why you want to go be cannon fodder in, in Afghanistan? We have plenty of people for that. You guys are special, and we want you to be, uh, we want you to be suicide bombers. And they didn't want to be suicide bombers. And they wanted glory. They wanted to, you know, uh, one of these guys wanted to become a, a Taliban general. And, you know, they had delusions of grandeur. And, and they wanted to, you know, 
be shooting RPGs and, you know, having war stories. Um, but what our book shows is basically how, how we make a suicide bomber. And we talk about uh, how these three guys uh, were taken to a camp and were slowly indoctrinated um, over, over many days into this idea that they would become suicide bombers. They were taught to make bombs, uh, and they were dispatched back to the United States, back to New York, um, where they decided that they were going to blow up the uh, New York City subways during rush hour. Uh, three backpack bombs, um, three subway cars coming out of you know Grand Central. You know the it would be horrible. And they actually built the bomb. Um, so juxtaposed with that narrative, we also talk about the rise of the New York City Police Department's Intelligence Division, which after 9/11 decided that they were going to spot the next domestic radicalized homegrown threat. Somebody like Anajibulazazi, who you know, was living among us and decided that he was going to get trained by Al-Qaeda and set his sights on the United States. So they built a lot of programs. And one of the first things that Ray Kelly, the police commissioner in New York, did was he went and recruited a guy, a former uh, CIA officer named Dave Cohen, to run this revamped intelligence division. This was a radical move. For, uh, for a city police department. I mean, the CIA is trained, no offense, to break the laws of foreign governments and operate with impunity where the Constitution doesn't apply. And, uh, and we're, you know, we decided we were going to put them in a police department where uh, you know, they're trained to uphold the law. So, I mean, it was this radical moment, the shift in, in policing. But it was happening so close after 9-11, nobody stopped to question, say, hey, you know, does this make sense? You know, did, this guy's never made an arrest. He's never had to build a criminal case. Is this what we want? It just sort of happened, like so much after 9-11. And Dave then picked up the phone and called down to Langley and said, uh, hey, I need somebody active duty. And they, and George Tennant, the CIA director, sent him a guy named Larry Sanchez, who had a blue CIA badge, which meant he could get into the CIA station in New York in the morning and then walk down to headquarters, I mean, to one police plaza and, you know, kind of direct intelligence gathering at the NYPD while he was on the CIA payroll. Again, this is a unique moment in American policing, to say the least. Um, and what they did was they created kind of a CIA on the Hudson, if you will. Um, they created this program called the Demographics Unit. And they, what they did was they looked over all of the hijackers' profiles from 9-11 and decided, geez, there were a lot of missed opportunities uh, here, where people along the way kind of saw that these guys were getting more and more radical. Um, and if only we, the NYPD, were in Muslim neighborhoods keeping tabs on rhetoric, keeping tabs on sentiment, then maybe we could spot the next uh, Muhammad Atta. So they dispatched teams of, uh, of young Arab and South Asian detectives into uh, Muslim neighborhoods to just hang out. And they would issue five, they would put together files that would say, I went to this restaurant, it's an Egyptian restaurant, the clientele was appeared to be devout Muslim uh, in their dress, uh, they were speaking in Urdu, they were talking about the State of the Union address, they were talking about politics, they don't like American foreign policy, they don't like drones, they do like American foreign policy. Um, uh, you know, they're watching Al Jazeera. They're not watching Al Jazeera. Um, here's the people's names I saw. Here's what's advertised on the bulletin board. You know, uh, here's the phone number of the guy who's renting a room. Um, so all of this stuff goes in police files, the idea being that they would have this sort of deep understanding of the community 
But what happens is you end up with just these massive amounts of information on people who have no connection to terrorism. And the idea being it's this, you need a haystack if you're going to find the needle in the haystack. Um, so what, uh, what our book does is it, it tracks the growth of this unprecedented intelligence collection effort inside New York City. One that goes, frankly, far beyond what the federal government would be allowed to do, what somebody like Don would be allowed to do in the name of fighting terrorism. Um, that's far more intrusive, and in many ways far more intrusive than even what the NSA does. Uh, certainly the NSA is much broader in its scope and can co- is much more technologically superior, but in terms of you know, your, the intimacy of your conversations, um, you know, the, what the NYPD was collecting was a lot more, a lot more personal. Um, and shockingly, uh, Najibul Azazi went unnoticed by all of these programs, and the demographics unit is just one. The NYPD was in his mosque. Uh, they had recruited the imam to become an informant. They had been in the coffee shops. They had been in all of the restaurants in his neighborhood. They had been in the student Muslim student groups uh, that his co-conspirators were in. Um, they had even been in the YMCA down the street from him. And at every turn, when these programs mattered most, uh, these extremely expensive intelligence gathering programs, um, the NYPD missed the exact threat that it was set up to um, that it was set up to catch. And so, what our book does, it really is like a 48-hour chase in in New York City as Don and his guys are are actually trying to figure out what the hell this guy is doing, um, what he's got. I mean, he has a bomb and who he's targeting, who he's working with, and how to prevent an actual uh, terrorist attack. Um, So really, hopefully, at this coming at a time when we're really talking about where to set the line, where to set the marker between civil liberties and security, um, hopefully it's, uh, you know, this book raises questions just about where we want to set that line. Because if we don't know what's what's going on, we really can't have an intelligent discussion about about where we want to put that marker. Now, did you, uh, Matt? Did you want to have Don? Uh, yeah, and I think it would benefit from the point of view of the bureau. A bit about how yeah. you, how how we did stop Zazi. Right. Well, first off, spoiler alert uh, for those of you that don't want to know how this ended, but I'll, I'll say the subways did not blow up. <laughs> so, uh, not to spoil anything here, um, I think that the Zazi investigation actually was a, a, a very good model in the way the system is su- supposed to work, and, and not to say that everything went perfectly because. It, it didn't, but in general terms, the system the system worked very well. It started with some good international cooperation amongst the, the Brits and the Americans, where a critical email that that, that that the Brits had was passed to the NSA that allowed our NSA to to monitor that email. And I'm not giving you anything that's that's not in the book and that's not in public <laughs> domain. So, you know, anyway. Make sure that you guys know I'm, I'm keeping everything uh, in unclassified here. So, um, so that email was being monitored, and through the monitoring of that of that email, they were able to pick up on on this critical email that was was sent um, by Najibul Azazi to one of these his key uh, handlers and trainers in in uh, Pakistan. And what had happened is Najibul Azazi had some some issues with regard to how he was making the bomb. He had been trained in bomb making, but in practicing, he, he was having some issues uh, in, with the recipe, the formula, and needed some clarification. And, and the, the the wording in the email was such that it, it was not all that sophisticated, uh, in, and it allowed 
uh, our intelligence community to pick up on the fact that this guy was likely um, building a bomb, which in fact was true. So once, once that information was picked up, then it was rather quickly traced back to Najibullah, who at the time was in, was in Denver. And within, with, really within a, a couple of days, our, our Denver office, after getting that information, was up monitoring Najibullah Zazi, his, his email phones, physical surveillance, and the like. So us in New York, we, you know, at that time, uh, when this started, we had no idea that, that we were going to be kind of in the middle of all this until I received a phone call. I believe it was Thursday afternoon, if I'm not mistaken, but I got a phone call from one of my counterparts in Washington, D.C., and he asked me, he said, have you heard the name Naji Bulazazi? And at that point, I, you know, I told him, no. He said, well, he's coming at you at 90 miles an hour. And, and literally, he was driving his car at, at 90 miles an hour from Denver, a car that he'd rented from Denver to New York. And he was, of course, being followed by FBI. But, but the presumption is that he was on his way to, to, to New York, likely to carry out some kind of an attack and possibly with explosives in the trunk of the car. So as you can imagine, it's um, every, you know, flare goes up at that point. And by some great work done um, by our analysts in New York and at, at FBI headquarters and, and elsewhere, we quickly learned that, that he, probably the reason he was coming to New York, A, he's from there, but he also had two close associates uh, with him. He had, you know, kind of grown up and we become friends. And then we realized shortly thereafter from some more uh, record searches and, and analytical work that they all traveled uh, to Pakistan together. So, you know, you, you start putting two and two together and you think, okay, he's, he's involved in the plot and, and probably these are his, you know, other co-conspirators given the fact that they're close, they traveled and so on and so forth. So within the matter of a few days, um, we were up monitoring everybody that had any kind of relation to Najibullah Zazi that we could figure out. We were monitoring their, their phones, emails, doing physical surveillance. The amount of assets that, when, you know, that were involved in this investigation were quite intense. And it wasn't just the FBI, I'll say. This was the NYPD. The state police in New York were huge. All the other federal agencies, CIA, NSA, everybody was involved. Um, so, and as the, the Kind of to keep. I won't, I won't. I don't want to give you away all the details in case you want to read the book. But uh, of course, you want to read the book. <laughs> yeah. Bottom line is, so once once we the whole intelligence community was was on to Naji Bulazazi, uh, and and he did attempt to get into New York City, and ultimately did get into New York City by crossing the bridge. But at that point, he he. I think he pretty much knew uh, that that he was under investigation because of, of the, his car being stopped and searched. And then if he didn't know that uh, during the, the day after, there was a, a telephone call that was intercepted whereby he was actually tipped off by an NYPD informant. And the details of that are in the book, so I'll let you, I'll <laughs> read those. But that was um, a, a very dicey situation for us. Obviously, we had shared critical information with the NYPD they took it to an informant. The informant basically compromised the case. So at that point, we we knew there was no really there wasn't any reason to go continue in stealth mode. It became much a bit you know much more of an overt investigation. Search warrants were were run. Uh, um, subjects were interviewed, and then ultimately uh, the individuals involved. Um, uh, we wound up 
being able to bring charges on him, and, and they, two of them pled guilty. One went to trial the Deese and, and was convicted. So it, it had a, a happy ending at the end, but uh, it definitely had some very <laughs> tense moments for the first, for the first couple days. Well, uh, let me just ask, let me go back to you for a moment, Matt. Um, one of the things that you uh, address in the book is the nature of the NYPD intelligence or counterintelligence yeah. or counterterrorism program. So my question is, um, since you've written the book, um, there have been other, the, the, the intelligence program has been publicized. Uh, you certainly address it in some detail. Um, is it in violation of the law? Has there been, have there been any attempts uh, by Department of Justice or the prosecutor in New York to address this issue of sending people into mosques and neighborhoods and stores and so right. forth? Well, so we based a lot of our NYPD reporting, in addition to you know, dozens of interviews with, with people in the NYPD, um, we have about, you know, we have several thousand pages of their secret documents, which give us a, a pretty good idea of what, what was going on. Um, and, and some of their programs are, are really interesting. I mean, and they, 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 again, they push the boundaries of what traditional law enforcement would be allowed to do. They had a program um, where if you are, if you're John Smith and you decide that you want to convert to Islam and you, uh, you want to change your name to Muhammad Ahmed, uh, you go to court, you petition to um, to change your name. Um, the NYPD sees the list of everybody who's filing name change petitions. And if it sounds like you're changing your name to a Muslim name, they're going to put you in a police file, they'll run all these background checks against you, and then maybe they'll just go out and try and interview you as to why, why are you trying to change your name. Um, similarly, if you're Mohammed Ahmed and you decide, I want to be John Smith, they're going to put you in a police file because they're going to think, well, geez, well, maybe he's trying to lay low and try to disguise the fact that he's a terrorist and wants to be able to go more unnoticed. So do the background checks, do an investigation, maybe try to interview you about why you changed your name. These are the kinds of things that were going on that nobody had ever heard of before. Um, now, are they legal? You know, there are lawsuits over this. I don't know if they're legal or not legal. But from where we sit, it's like, um, you know, renditions legal. Uh, indefinite detention at Guantanamo is legal. Um, nobody's going to jail for, uh, you know, for waterboarding. Uh, you know, the Patriot Act is legal. Um, the, the question isn't really what is legal and illegal. I think the question is we're 12 years after 9-11. I think people are ready to have a discussion about what we have made legal. And, and you know, having that discussion now doesn't mean necessarily that, you know, well, we made the wrong – you're saying we made the wrong decisions years ago. No, the, the question of wh what's right for 2013 is not necessarily what was right for 2002 to 2003. So I don't know if – I don't know if this stuff is legal or not legal. I know that it's, it's not being done anywhere else in the country. I know that in most instances it continues today. Um, the collaboration between the NYPD Intelligence Division and the CIA is like no other collaboration that has existed in the history of American law enforcement. Well, I won't say history because we did have some CIA Police Department collaboration in the 60s and 70s. It didn't go so well. Um, but recent, modern more modern history. So we'll see. We'll see. I mean, there's lawsuits. We'll see if, we'll see if this stuff holds up. Yeah. 
We had, uh, and I, some of you may remember this, but we had an exhibit here at the, uh, at the museum called The Enemy Within, and it was about terrorism in America, domestic and imported, whether it was the Klan or German saboteurs. And of course, we were looking at both terrorism and our reaction as a society and a government to it, and as a government to it. And of course, the reaction to the outbreak of World War II was we put about 125,000 Japanese Americans into prison, none of whom were ever found guilty of anything. In other words, clearly an overreaction, which we as a government later apologized for. But I'm, I'm sort of sensing from what you say uh, that you're suggesting that you think we may have we may have overreached. We have because there was tremendous pressure, and I just asked Don to comment on that. In the wake of 9/11, there was tremendous pressure on the intelligence communities and law enforcement to quote do something. Um, I remember they they actually doubled the number of operations officers in CIA. They doubled the number of analysts and FBI, even as Director Mueller has said, has become more and more of an intelligence collection and, and anti-terrorist uh, agency. But what, from your perspective, you were uh, assistant SAC in charge, uh, you're now out and you've had a chance uh, both to uh, participate to a degree in the book and also to take a look at it, uh, having been there and now being out. Well, I think... I can't speak to the NYPD, but at the, you know, for the FBI and the federal system, there was a lot that was done, and a lot of improvements were made. And I think, you know, if, if somebody were to ask me, are we safer today than than we were in, you know, uh, 2001? I'd say absolutely. Uh, as you mentioned, there, the FBI um, brought in many more analysts who actually created a uh, director of intelligence to. to to take the analytical, um, you know, all, all the analytical assets of, of the FBI kind of, and put them under one roof, standardize them, and, and make them more similar to the rest of the intelligence community. In addition, there's so much more cooperation um, bet between agencies, between the FBI, CIA, the state and locals, other federal agencies, and even internationally, uh, the, the amount of uh, information that we share with, with foreign counterparts is is much more significant, um, at least when I left the FBI in, in 2010, it was much more significant than in 2001. So there, there was a, a lot of things that were done to make the, the system uh, more efficient and, and to be able to uh, thwart these plots. You know, s still, does that mean it's perfect? Absolutely not. There's always room that, that can, you know, room for improvement, and especially as as technology has advanced so much over the last 10, 12 years, I think that's Part of, partially been a little bit of the Achilles heel of at least of the FBI, and, and hopefully that's getting better now. But that was one of the areas I think we lagged behind on, uh, or, you know, early on after 2001. So, um, but but yeah, a, a, a lot a, a lot was done, and and I think the you know the the fact that you know notwithstanding Boston and some other incidents that have happened in the states, but I I think we've thwarted many, many more plots and save many more lives than were lost, you know, in the last uh, 10, 12 years. And I, I think, you know, in the Zazi case alone, um, as Don said, you know, the, the British government passes information to NSA, they get an email, it's passed to CIA, which is passed to FBI, which is passed to state and locals, like, really quickly. I mean, there's just no way that pre-9-11 that was going to happen. I mean, may, if it was going to happen, it certainly wasn't going to happen as quickly as it did. Um, <clears throat> so in many ways, while, you know, I hope our book 
raises, you know, raises questions and certainly gets people talking about, you know, the role of intelligence domestically. Um, I mean, in the end, I do think that, that people should see the Zazi case as a good indication that, you know, um, we have improved, you know, and we have improved on the mistakes we've made since 9-11. I mean, there's some really, there's some real, there, some things go really wrong in this, this is not just some smooth sailing case. Some things go really wrong. Um, but, you know, it, in the end, it, in the end, I hope people leave with the impression that that some of the changes that we've made after 9-11, some of the biggest problems we made after 9-11 do work. And there was also a big discussion after 9-11 about kind of the role of law enforcement in, in counterterrorism, of sort of whether this was a purely military issue, um, you know, a purely – this was a CIA and Pentagon thing that the FBI was kind of like antiquated or law enforcement was kind of this – Oh, you want to use Miranda rights? Well, that isn't that cute. Um, but you know what we talk about in the book. I mean, there's a there are some moments in this book where it's the ticking time bomb theory. And the ticking for those of you guys who don't know, the ticking time bomb theory paradox is a terrorist. No, there's a bomb hidden in the city, and you have a terrorist in custody who knows where it is. How far are you willing to go in interrogating him to save the lives of the people who will inevitably be killed by the time bomb? I mean, they had that situation, um, and uh, and you know, rules are, were followed, and lives were still saved. And I think that speaks. Um, hopefully, it gives people a sense that uh, we don't necessarily need to throw out what ha- all of what has worked for you know the first two hundred and some odd years of the republic, um, and that you know some of these same foundations um, did work when it mattered. Yeah, I think it is a, a fundamental question. And Don, in your accounting of the Najibullah Azazi case, um, you clearly indicated that the NYPD, in passing the information to informant, that led the informant to give away the information, which have, could have totally ruined the case. It never could have gone to court. Uh, Zazi might have been able to get away with his crime. He might have been able to escape. I think, so my, my question is uh, your perspective as a federal law enforcement agency uh, on the NYPD program. In other words, here was an instance where clearly um, it was upsetting. It didn't work. It, it didn't work as, as well as Matt is uh, describing things having generally gotten better. What is your perspective of the that's, NYPD program that, that, overall? That's a perfect segue into what I, was, I wanted to comment on anyway, and that is I think it's important to know that when you say that the word NYPD, there's, that's, it's a very complex um, organization, and it's not kind of just this, uh, you know, it, it's, it's one size does not fit all with the NYPD. When we talk about NYPD, there's, there's the intelligence division, and, and there's also the counterterrorism division. So I want to make it clear that the, the JTTF has more than 150 Oh, the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Sorry, I shouldn't use uh, um, okay, thank the, you. letters here. So the Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York has upwards of around 150 de- detectives that are assigned. And these detectives are fully deputized uh, under the federal system. They are given full access to all of the FBI's computer systems and information, they're actually, you know, they're, they're given cars to drive. They're, they're, they're basically given the same authorities and, and the same resources that the FBI agents on the task force are given. 
and they're assigned cases just like the FBI agents. They go out and work alongside the FBI, and and they're they're very they're very seasoned detectives. They're very good, and quite frankly, the New York uh, FBI office and the New York Joint Terrorism Task Force could not be successful without the fine work done by these NYPD detectives. So when we say NYPD and we're talking about them in the context of, of Adam and Matt's book, that's not the Joint Terrorism Task Force because the guys that work in the task and, and, and ladies that worked in the task force for the most part are, are very excellent detectives and there's not this you know, tug of war uh, type situation. Now then, the, and there's also the NYPD Intelligence Division, which is the subject of, of the book. And that at some time, at, sometimes can be very adversarial towards the Joint Terrorism Task Force, that information some, that is often shared with the Intelligence Division is not uh, afforded the, the right security or it's used in the wrong way. And, and there's, been, there's many, many anecdotal stories to talk about how, uh, you know, that that trust over time has been has been broken between the FBI and the Joint Terrorism Task Force and the Intelligence Division, and some of these anecdotal stories are are, are shared in in Matt and Adam's book. So um, I think it's important to, to note note the distinction there. That again, we could not do we the FBI could not do its job, especially in New York, such a big city, um, with without the. But full could you do? But could you do some of the stuff? I mean, you obviously weren't read in on some of the stuff that the intelligence division was doing, but you've had the chance to read our, our, a fine book. Um, I mean, could you? You guys don't have a demographics unit. We some of the stuff, quite frankly, that that the NYPD intelligence division was doing, we would not be allowed to do under FBI authorities. We have very strict authorities under the Attorney General guidelines that are then kind of passed down and in, into FBI directives on what we're allowed to do and not do in opening cases, opening informants, everything. And quite frankly, the, the notion that FBI agents could sit, you know, and monitor Friday prayers and all the mosques and log license plates and know what, you know, the, the person was, you know, talking about in, in the Friday sermon kind of week after week after week and keep this kind of ongoing collection log over that, there's no way we could do it. It's uh, for First Amendment uh, rights being violated. It's at least in... in in context of the FBI um, um, uh, and the Attorney General guidelines. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Uh, why don't we open it up? I imagine there's some folks here who may have questions based on, on your presentation, Matt, your comments, Don. Uh, and I would just ask if you would uh, wait for the microphone. Laura's picking up a microphone, uh, Amanda as well. Uh, there's one right down here in front, uh, Laura. Thank you. If you all would wait for the mic, everybody can hear the question. Uh, Don, within the intelligence community, it's uh, kind of a well-known reputation that the FBI was behind for many years on their computer use and emailing and databases and so forth. What's your opinion now um, of how the FBI is doing as far as use of computers and computer technologies today? I, I, I've been out for three years, so um, it was getting better when I left. I'm assuming it's better now. I won't point them out. There's some form, or some of my uh, former colleagues in the audience if they want to chime in on if it's better or not better. Um, it, it seemed like it was getting better when I left, but it, it, was, it was very frustrating, um, especially a lot of the folks on the analytical side, I think, uh, because you, know, you, would, 
you would get a name or a phone number or a license plate and have to run it in you know, four or five or six different databases to be satisfied that you had done all the proper checks instead of just running it in one system where everybody, you know, where they all kind of, all the, the databases uh, spoke with each other. So I don't know where we, where, where the FBI is at now. Um, I, I hope it, it improvements were made since I left. That's all well, I can tell you. It's still not like in the Bourne movies where they just have the big screen up and they're like, all right, go to that closed circuit television. Give me this, give me this. I mean, we saw that with the Navy Yard shooting. I mean, untangling these things is, uh, you know, it, it takes time and it, there's some confusion at the beginning. So, again, I think we all benefit if that gets better. I'm really surprised to hear you say that because the uh, – uh, Hollywood depictions of CIA are dead-on accurate. I mean, there's no way they've gotten that wrong. Okay, other questions? Oh, we have several. Here's one right here, Laura. Thanks. Um, Matt, the uh, AP stories were just amazing. Um, I'm wondering how you, if you could describe how you decided on, the, how you found that story and then how you developed your sources. Um, yeah, so for the stories, for the initial stories, um, Adam and I cover counterterrorism and national security for uh, um, for the AP. Uh, we're on our projects team uh, here in Washington, and we were working on a story about CIA accountability and um, sort of what happens when uh, things go bad. What happens to the uh, people who get disciplined? Um, and many times they get promoted, uh, as it's as it were. But so we were working on that story, and we were talking with a bunch of of guys in in that world. Uh, who kind of just mentioned in pa- like almost just as an aside, um, you know their their work in New York or uh, familiarities with New York, and they used words that we weren't familiar with. Words like rakers. Uh, these are these plainclothes detectives. Uh, they call them rakers um, uh, or moss crawlers, which is another word we heard. Um, demographics unit. We're pretty familiar with the with the jargon. And so when we heard these things, we went to another colleague of ours, Eileen Sullivan, who like really knows the domestic counterterrorism world, um, you know, the policing angle really, really well. And she had never heard of it. And so we said, God, there's got to be something there. So we kind of put it aside and started nosing around. Um, I mean, I, re- I literally knew so little about the NYPD Intelligence Division. I remember going to LinkedIn, one of the first things, and just typing in NYPD Intelligence Division, just because I knew nothing, right? I had no sources in NYPD Intelligence Division. And I sort of, like, printed up everybody who was there. And, well, let's just start there. Um, And uh, and slowly started to write this, you know, sort of started to write these stories with Adam about about the growth of the NYPD as an intelligence agency. Wrote a lot of stories with with Adam and with Eileen and... uh, Early on, we had this conversation. We were only planning on writing one story. We had this conversation with the spokesman of the NYPD, and we said, well, we'd like to talk about the demographics unit. <clears throat> he says, well, there's no such thing as a demographic. We have no demographics unit. Well, it, okay. Um, has there ever been a demographics unit? No. Well, has ever anything been, like, informally known as a demographics unit? No. Somebody has a wild imagination. This is all fiction, yada, yada, yada. And so for us, when it's like, well, geez, when somebody says something that we know to be false, like we just know that to be false, it kind of like our editor was like, well, geez, there's got to be something more there, right? Like why would they lie about that? Um, so just keep at it. And we actually put a different project on hold um, and, uh, and pursued that full time. And then when we started looking at writing a book, um, 
you know, we knew that just sort of a polemic about the rise of the NYPD wouldn't really be all that interesting, but it dovetails so nicely with the Najibullah Zazi case. And, um, you know, as we looked out sort of across the spectrum, we realized that, you know, people who were running that case, like like Don and Jim Davis, who's the FBI uh, special agent in charge in Denver, um, you know, others you know, who were intimately involved in this case in real time had left the Bureau and the cases had been closed. And so there was a, there was a record. And so when we started thinking about writing a book, we sort of said, geez, you know, the Zazi case is perfect. It's a perfect way to tell the rise of the NYPD story. So we kind of dovetailed those two stories together. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Here's one right down the aisle here. Laura, thank you. You mentioned that um, uh, the NYPD had a lot more um, room to move than the federal agency. Uh, it seems to me that a reporter would have even more room, and you would have more sources than even the uh, police department. I hope so. Um, look, the reason the NYPD has more room to move, I mean, they don't have... They don't have the oversight that the federal government does, for better or for worse. I mean, the NYPD spends 30 to $40 million a year on its intelligence division times, you know, 12 years since 9-11. So we're talking 36 to $480 million has been spent on these programs. Um, the city council, which passes the budget, has no idea what's going on. Uh, Congress isn't told. The Department of Homeland Security isn't told. Um, the White House, which helps fund it, isn't told. So... Um, it's a, uh, you know, it, nobody's asking the question, what's, uh, what, where's the money going? What are we doing? Do we approve of these programs? Do we not approve of these programs? Um, there's not that level of oversight, you know, that you see at the federal level. Um, maybe that, you know, the NYPD will say, look, that, that can freeze us from some of the constraints, the bureaucracy that we have in Washington. That makes us more nimble and allows us to be able to respond more quickly. But it also, it also, makes it impossible for the public to assess whether these programs work or not because they happen completely in secret. What sort of, uh, just out of interest, what sort of reaction to your book, to your surfacing of the, of the, uh, this unit, the intelligence unit, what sort of reaction are you getting in New York by New Yorkers, by councilmen, by, the, by city and state government? Well, the, the city council passed an inspector general for the first time over the NYPD, so that will happen in with under a new mayor. Um, look, there's a real reluctance to, to, you know, to draw down or even talk about domestic surveillance in the United States right now because, you know, we have this feeling, especially in New York, of we could be attacked at any moment. So especially those people who are not being surveilled are very willing to say, I support surveillance of other people if it makes me feel safer. Um, so, you know, that that's a real feeling in New York, and so I think it's a tough topic to tackle. Uh, Muslims are not exactly a politically uh, entrenched or powerful you know, ethnic or religious group in the United States right now. So, um, you know, there's, there's certainly not an outrage, which is fine by us, I, because I, I feel like there is a discussion. Yeah. Okay. Other questions for Matapuza or, yes, right here, right in the middle, Laura. Thanks. Um, are, have other um, municipal law enforcement agencies internationally, for example, the Metropolitan Police Department in London, um, 
Have they done anything similar, established an intelligence division or something along those lines, or is this sort of uh, unique, not just in the United States, but, but internationally? I know it's unique in the United States. I can't really speak. You probably might even know internationally. You, you I, travel abroad a lot more than I do. I, I, I actually I, I don't I don't know. Sorry. I, I, London, if they have it or anywhere else. I don't a lot know. of cameras in London. I know that. Right. Okay. One question right there. I just wondered if either of you gentlemen have uh, any thoughts on why do so many of these incidents happen in New York, aborted terrorist uh, attempts, when, first of all, I think people who are contemplating terrorist acts probably have some sense now that New York is rather vigilant. There are so many other cities in the United States that perhaps would not be as sophisticated or as on guard as New York is. But it's rather, I don't really have a comprehensive knowledge, but it does seem that a disproportionate number of these things happen in New York. There are also other cities with you know, significant Islamic populations. I, I think in New York, you just, from the terrorist perspective, you get the biggest bang for the buck. I mean, it's, just, it's a very iconic target. Everybody kind of understands uh, you know, what, what happened on 9-11. New York is is a is a media uh, capital. So anything that happens in New York gets significant media coverage. The financial base in New York, obviously, it's kind of the it's the it's the I would say you know not just the the, the financial you know center for the U.S. but probably for the world with with Wall Street and all the, the you know um, all the, the the banking and finance. So you you really you have a a, a multitude of, of Targets, and even though that um, New York is probably way ahead of most cities, if not on top, as, as far as being vigilant and surveillance and all the different programs, it still is. There's still a lot of targets available um, that are considered kind of more or less soft targets. I mean, we saw what happened in the attempted Times Square bombing. You know, somebody can park a car, and 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 thank goodness it didn't blow up. But that was that was really a law enforcement. Failure, even though no lives were lost, but that vehicle was, you know, if if a, if a detonation happened instead of just kind of sitting there, you know, burning, it, it would have, you know, cost a lot of lives. So I think, you know, that's that's some of the reasons, probably the main reasons, why New York still figures prominently, you know, um, on it's the the, the terrorist uh, uh, wish list. Also, I, I will say that, you know, one of the things that just came out recently, I think within the last ten days or so. Ayman Zawahiri got on, he was on, on a video talking to, you know, all the, the, the Al-Qaeda followers of the world saying, continue to do these lone wolf attacks like we saw in Boston and other cities and, and bleed the U.S. of its financial resources, realizing that Al-Qaeda would, chances are they're, they're not going to pull off a 9-11 again. I, I would be... I would I would bet the house that there is no way that they're going to pull off a massive, sophisticated attack like they did on 9/11 because of everything that's in place now. However, the the lone wolf attacks, the the, the Boston type things that that cost us millions and millions of dollars, they realize every time even even a, a thwarted plot costs millions and millions of dollars. So this is a way to bleed off our financial resources. So that's kind of the you know the tactics that we have to face in the now. Okay. All right. Uh, let's take one more over here. Right here, Laura. 
Matt, it's always been my impression that the NYPD Intelligence Division goes back quite a ways. Uh, when did it start? Um, the Intelligence Division uh, has, a, has a storied history. Um, they, uh, they had, in the 60s and 70s, well, I mean, it goes all the way. I mean, it goes back to the early 20th century. But, um, I mean, the sort of their heyday was the 60s and 70s when they infiltrated um, radical groups uh, from the weather underground and whatnot, but also uh, anti-war protesting groups. Uh, they actually, the NYPD Intelligence Division basically formed the New York chapter of the Black Panthers and then built files on everybody who showed up to sign up. Um, they uh, they would collect the names of everybody who signed anti-war petitions and then they put you in files and if you ever tried to like, you know, apply for the bar, you would, you'd, they'd be like ambiguously wondering, you know, why you couldn't, why, why am I not able to get licensed as a lawyer? Um, because you signed a, per, a petition in the basement of like Columbia University three years earlier. Um, so they had these incredible programs uh, that were building files. They had a, name cards, uh, investigative cards on a million people uh, by 1973. And there was a lawsuit, and after about 10 years of this lawsuit, the NYPD agreed that they would follow these new federal guidelines, and it was called the Consent Decree. And the Consent Decree basically said, you won't investigate people and you won't start putting stuff in files on political speech unless you have actual evidence of a crime. Um, and then after 9-11, Dave Cohen went to court and was like, well, we can't wait for evidence to start investigating. If you wait for evidence, the evidence could be, you know, two smoking buildings. We need the ability to start investigating before we have evidence of a crime. Um, we need the ability to investigate when there's the possibility of a crime. We need to investigate – we need the ability to investigate organizations um, where terrorists might, uh, you know, sort of – hang out, even if that is an organization that might otherwise be protected by a, for the First Amendment. Uh, Larry Sanchez actually testified for our Congress that one of the great things the NYPD did is that they started to view the First and Fourth Amendment a little differently than the federal government and started to view First and Fourth Amendment activity as pre potential precursors to terrorism. Nobody stopped to say, well, wait a minute, you guys are reinterpreting the First and Fourth Amendment? You know, it was just post 9-11, we're just doing it. Um, so the new rules allowed them to, to do all these things, and what our book does is basically say this is what they did with that authority. Um, they designated about a dozen mosques, entire mosques, with like you know hundreds of thou or thousands of members as terrorism organizations, because if you investigate the entire mosque as the terrorism organization, then you're allowed to audio tape anybody who comes in, collect license plate of anybody who's in attendance. Um, eavesdrop on any conversation, build files on anybody who shows up, whereas if you just are investigating one or two people there, you can really only have files on those one or two people. So um, what our book does, it really talks about the tactics that, that, that they used under these authorities that we gave them after 9-11. Okay. Matt, thank you for your, your book, yeah. your contribution you. to the conversation. And Matt Apuzzo, uh, Don Morelli, thank you so much for your presentation this evening. And, uh, Thanks a lot. I think they'll both be here for a while, and I know Matt is going to sign books at the back. Is that correct, Matt? Yes. Okay. Thank you again. Have a great evening. Thank you for coming. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening.